Rosanna, welcome to a special edition of Winner Take All. I'm really pleased to be joined by Chris Leonard. He's a New York Times bestselling author. His latest book, The Lords of Easy Money, How the Federal Reserve Broke the American Economy, is a New York Times uh, business bestselling book already and, and has recently just kind of hit the shelves uh, in January. It's going to be a great conversation. Chris, great to have you with us. Thanks for joining. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Couldn't have picked, I think, a better title, something that we talk about a lot on the show about how much money has been injected into the economy in just such an unprecedented fashion. Your book does such a great job of not only kind of highlighting what's happened in the past few years, in the past decade, but also really brings it back, you know, really kind of looking over the past 50 years or so, sometimes even even farther than that, but but really kind of looking at different periods of time and how similar dynamics have presented themselves, but there's a lot of things that really make this certainly quite unique as kind of aptly fitting title here for for the amount of money that has been printed. You know, when you look at that spectrum, and the book does a great job of laying this out, you know, how much of this is like history repeating itself versus really kind of unique uncharted territory? That's a great question. And okay, so clearly the the bulk and the anchor of what I'm trying to write about in the book is what's happened since 2010 and the last decade and what this last decade has looked like economically. And okay, to a certain degree that we can talk about, you can compare it to the past of are we making the same mistakes? For example, you know, did the Fed keep money too easy for too long and stoke these high prices on Wall Street and asset bubbles? Or is the Fed acting too slowly right now? And is it allowing inflation to take hold? But to me, the really critical point is that 2008, 2009 really does mark a break in history. That, that what the Fed has been doing, particularly since 2010, uh, is a, a, a true and, and frankly radical departure from the history of how the Federal Reserve has operated, how it fits into our economy, and, and just the, the size and scope of, of what it's doing. So I, I think the, the last decade, and, and I can walk through why I think this, but it, it's a break from history. We're living in really uncharted territory when it comes to monetary policy. Yeah, there's there's so many ways I want to go with this um, with this interview, and uh, so I loved reading the book. Kind of zipped on through it. Uh, I've got it here. Wonderful read. There's one quote, you know, because I love the kind of historical comparison here. Right? There's there's one quote. I I don't know where this came from, or maybe it was one of the Fed governors. It was really kind of saying. You have it in there, right? There's two reasons for the central bank. One, to create currency. Two, to be a lender of last resort for reputable banks. My notes say reputable banks. Uh huh. Did I write that down correctly? Was that kind of the original thesis for the Fed and, and the idea of a central bank? Without question. That's why we created a central bank. And, and as I kind of put it in the book, I feel like if America could have existed without a central bank, we would have. We, we've always been really skeptical of creating an institution that's sort of a, a government-chartered central bank that can create new money out of thin air. That's a tremendous amount of power. And we were hesitant to do that. You know, we chartered and then revoked the charter of a, of a national bank two times before we created the Federal Reserve in 1913. 
And, and the reasons we did it were exactly what you just stated. First of all, we needed the Fed to create and manage a currency. It, it's really fascinating that in the 1800s, we had literally thousands of currencies in the United States. Uh, a bank would issue its own currency. So if I lived in Illinois, I might have Illinois currency. And then I stay in a hotel room in Oregon, and I've got to get into an argument about how sound the currency is I'm using. It, 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 it was an unwieldy and, and ineffective system. So the Fed creates this thing we call the dollar. But then the second key power the Fed had was to step in when there's a banking panic and, and basically print unlimited dollars if needed to lend them to, you use the word reputable banks, another way to put it, and I can't, I can't remember if that's in the book, it's, it's, it's right, but it's this idea that banks that are otherwise healthy, the banks, the banks that would live except they're being hammered by a panic when there's a rush for deposits, the Fed was built to step in and soothe that panic so that these good banks didn't go under. So it was meant to be a stabilizing force. And, and really, in my view, the Fed worked pretty well for, for decades and decades. We, uh, but of course, it was acting in concert with banking regulations passed by Congress in the White House. That's a key part of the story. You know, after the depression, we broke up the big banks. We put the Wall Street speculators on, the, on a tight leash. That was an important part of the story. But the Fed also did a really good job of, of managing this currency and keeping the money sound for, for many decades. What we're going to talk about, I think, is how things changed so dramatically in 2010. And just to put a very quick headline on it, you know, after 2010, the Fed kept interest rates at zero for seven years. We, we hear about the Fed raising or lowering interest rates. That's kind of managing the currency, managing the money supply, loosening or tightening the money supply. The Fed kept interest rates at zero for seven years, a remarkable break from historical patterns. Interest rates had kind of brushed up against zero briefly before, but the Fed kept them there for seven years, while at the same time, pumping trillions of dollars into the banking system through this unprecedented experimental program called quantitative easing, which basically tripled the money supply in a few short years. In other words, the Fed created three times as many new dollars between 2008 and 2014 compared to what it created in the first century of its existence. So, so this is a remarkable difference, and, and we're living in a new era. At the end of the book, I think you've got um, a quote or a kind of a reference from Yellen, current Treasury Secretary. It seems like her new interpretation of the role of the Fed, instead of being a lender of last resort for banks, is now a lender of last resort for everyone. And I thought that was just such a stark contrast from how things have changed. Thank you so much for zeroing in on that. Um, that is exactly what she said when I interviewed her in 2020. And I think to her, it was sort of conventional wisdom when she said it. But to me, historically, it just made me about fall out of my chair. <laughs> because what she's saying is, is the following, okay? The Fed was created to, to help banks in the case of a banking panic. So, uh, you know, First National Bank of Boston, to take a totally hypothetical example, would be facing a run on its deposits during a panic. But if, if the bank was sound, the Fed was supposed to give it an emergency loan. And, and this was really key so that we didn't have these crushing panics as we did, as we used to have in the 1800s. What Yellen is saying 
is 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 she is fully internalizing the expansive role that the Fed is playing now, which has expanded incrementally over particularly the last 30 years, which culminates, and we can kind of work up to this, but you know, in 2020, we faced a, a remarkable historic financial crisis because of COVID, but the crisis was intensified uh, by, by what the Fed had done by, by stoking up so many uh, asset prices like the stock market. But in 2020, the Fed stepped in and didn't just bail out the banks, it bailed out directly, it bailed out the hedge funds, the private equity firms. It, for the first time, directly purchased corporate junk debt. It purchased the debt of mid-sized businesses through this so-called Main Street Lending Program. And so what Yellen is saying here is that the Fed is going to use its power to create new money to, to, to bail out the entire economy in the case of a downturn. And, and that's exactly what it's been doing. But, but again, it's been doing it in a way that, that I think benefits mostly the financial system, the big banks, the hedge funds, the private equity firms, uh, while, while doing very little for actual you know, wage earners in America. So it's a pretty expansive view of Fed power. Just this contrast is just so insane. So I just, <laughs> you know, I have to do more of it. So, you know, now you go back to the beginning you had 1913, the Jekyll Agreement, right, which which kind of constituted our current version of the Fed. If the Fed was going to increase or decrease the money supply, the Fed had to do it through uh, these, you know, reserve banks, which there's like 20 or 24 of these reserve banks. Maybe that number has gone up or down over the past few decades. But right, the, the Fed had to go through the banks in order to affect change. And now like the the example you gave, I mean, you know, and, and, and there's other examples that you talk about. I mean, they're just going completely around the reserve banks and just, and, and using their, their, they have the best app literally in the history of humanity, as you alluded to, which is just, you can literally just print money out of thin air. And now they're, they've kind of unshackled themselves from going through these reserve banks and are just going into like all areas of the economy. It just, I don't even know how to describe it. How do you describe it? Well, this is so helpful because I feel like people who really closely look at this stuff uh, just feel it's hard to talk about where we are today without sounding hyperbolic. And, And let me tell you, I mean, there are a lot of people like hardened, cynical Wall Street types who just can't believe what they're they're seeing today. So so to back up to your central point, it's a critical one. And this helps help explain what's going on. So in 1913, we formed the central bank, um, and it's famously done by this group of bankers on a resort off the coast of Georgia called Jekyll Island, which what a wonderful place to charter a central bank, Jekyll Island. It's great. But they make this, this critical structural compromise. It's important. They say, okay, we do not want this government-run central bank to displace Wall Street. Now, remember, this is Wall Street, right, making this uh, agreement. And what they say is that the Fed has to operate behind the banks on Wall Street. In other words, the Fed, when it creates new dollars, it can't create them in the checking account of normal uh, wage earners. It has to create these new dollars inside a a select group of so-called reserve accounts, like these banks like JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, Wells Fargo literally get a license that makes them a so-called primary dealer. 
that allows them to do business directly with the Fed. So when the Fed goes out there to create dollars, it does it through this strange mechanism whereby it purchases assets from these primary dealers, from Wells Fargo and Goldman Sachs. It purchases, let's say, a treasury bond, and it does it by making the new money appear in Goldman Sachs reserve account at the Fed. So when when we talk about the Fed injecting money into the economy or, or what have you, it's really injecting money into the reserve accounts on Wall Street. That's the traditional way. That's the traditional way. Now we've got two 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 crazy levels of step change. Let's first deal with the first one that happens in 2010, which is the Fed says, "Okay, we're keeping interest rates zero, and we're going to create trillions of dollars in the Wall Street reserve accounts." through this program called quantitative easing, which is just radically fast and large money creation. The Fed buys treasury bonds from the primary dealers. It creates the cash in their account. And the idea is that these primary dealers will then go out there and like extend loans. Really, it it just supercharges Wall Street. It supercharges stock bond prices uh, and risky lending. But then there's this second step change. Okay, that was enough of, of a wild break with history of what happened between 2010, 2019, massive money creation on Wall Street. And then what you're talking about is the next iteration in 2020, when the Fed says, yeah, we're going to continue to do this with the primary dealers. We're going to print, I think literally now we're at about 4.5 trillion new dollars, 450 years worth of money created in in a couple of years on Wall Street. But we are also going to expand our writ and directly purchase corporate junk debt, directly purchase corporate junk debt that's been packaged into these securitized uh, things called CLOs, which is a lot like the home loan thing. And and, and then interestingly, we're going to go out and and it's this thing called the Main Street Lending Program. We're going to go buy debt from these regional banks that extend it to mid-sized businesses. So yes, it's it's the cycle of ever expanding interventions to kind of correct for the earlier interventions, if you will. You would think that the, you know, the reserve banks would maybe secretly uh, kind of be a little, you know, uh, chafed that, that the Fed's going around them, which is which is kind of diluting the power that these reserve banks have. You know, are, are there murmurings of that or is there just such calamity that everyone is just in such a panic? They said, yes, OK, Fed, please do this. But someone's got to be saying, uh, I don't know, can't put this genie back in the bottle. You know, the reserve banks aren't grumpy about this. Well, not not as much, because first of all, the, the reserve banks, which, again, are the biggest of the big banks on Wall Street and then other select financial institutions, you know, the Fed has their back. They know that if there is a downturn in asset prices, the Fed will be there to bail them out. So they they are quite happy with the system as it is set up now. They describe the permanent Fed bailout system as the so-called Fed put. You know, a put is an option contract to buy something at a at a floor. And and these banks know that there's a floor. You know, when, when things get bad, the Fed will step in and bail them out. What's so interesting about the dynamic you're talking about is, you know, aren't they grumbling that the Fed is 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 moving outside of this system? Uh, let me please assure you, don't worry about Wall Street. They are getting their cut of this system. Now, it's not necessarily J.P. Morgan 
and Wells Fargo, but it's going to be your big hedge funds. Uh, like I always mess up BlackRock, Larry Fink's hedge fund. It's not Blackstone, it's BlackRock. So when the Fed goes out to purchase corporate junk debt or these, these other assets, it does it by, and not to get too, too technical, but it creates a special purpose vehicle, which is an account at the Fed, but it, it will purchase this stuff through the existing hedge funds. Also unprecedented, right? Like, I mean, th- this is a new construct designed by Geithner, right? To put these SPVs, completely unprecedented stuff, right? This was, you could, this was just not in, this wasn't in the charter, um, but this actually did have the kind of blessing of the federal government to go and do this, as you're talking about. Without question, you say it's unprecedented. And it was when they first started this kind of regime in 2009 and 2010, when the Fed first did this so-called quantitative easing, which again, it's just pumping money into the banking system by buying assets with money you create. Um, it was literally BlackRock making the purchases, if, if I'm not mistaken, but they, uh, it was a hedge yeah. fund like that, that they have come in and make the purchases in a market that BlackRock is also participating in by packaging and selling these assets. But the Fed says it's putting in you know, these ethical barriers of a Chinese wall within BlackRock that, you know, the guys buying for the Fed can't talk to the people selling for BlackRock. And I'm sure BlackRock has played it to a T on the rules. Oh, yes, absolutely. No question. Yeah. The system still uses Wall Street. Uh, Okay. And and so Wall Street is still at the forefront of this. And, And when the markets crashed in 2020, uh, gosh, there was a story in the New York Times that I think the Fed Chairman Jay Powell was on the phone with Larry Fink at BlackRock like eight times a day, uh, or you know that's a number I'm I'm kind of trying to remember accurately. But they're working hand in glove with these institutions. And okay, if I could point out something interesting here, um, these institutions know that they're just fine. They they are going to be bailed out almost certainly. Okay, but the people who talk to me who are most, you know, the people who brought this whole thing to my attention are the hedge fund types. I mean, in in their honest moments, they realize what the Fed is doing is pretty dangerous because it's creating this volatility. It's creating this financial fragility by pumping so much money into the banking system. And, you know, I've got on, on the record is guy, Scott Minard, who, who works at a hedge fund called Guggenheim, who's an advisor to the New York Fed, and when the Fed stepped in in 2020 and directly bought corporate junk debt, he's just saying, this is insane. He, he never seen anything like this. He's like, how do, how do interest rates even mean anything anymore if the Fed is just going to step in and buy this debt when it goes bad? I mean, so these folks are, are blown away by the reality of what's happening. And also, and, and this is also where you, where you end the book, the, the Fed is now the backstop for the federal deficit. I mean, <laughs> yeah. like, how does that even work? The, the federal government, people, it's going to be too expensive for the federal government to borrow. And so the Fed just says, sure, we'll, we'll buy the, the, the debt from the federal government. I mean, this is just some, some really kind of incestuous circular madness that's going on here. Right? I mean, this is just, it's next level. It's next level. It's hard to 
wrap your head around. And I am not an inherent critic of government spending. Uh, I, I just have to say that off the bat. But let me say I'm very alarmed by by what's happening now. And, and okay. The book starts in 2010 when the Fed decides to go down this road. And I, I try to profile one of the Fed officials who, who warned against doing this. He was a Kansas City Fed president named Tom Honick. One of the arguments he makes is that when you start printing money in this way, it's going to be almost impossible to stop. Okay, let's talk about the Fed's relationship to our national debt in this regard. When the Fed prints money, and I say print, the Fed always wants to hammer me for that because they're like, we don't run the printing presses. I'm like, okay, fine. When you create money digitally in the reserve accounts on Wall Street, I say print money so people understand what we're saying. But when the Fed prints money, it's doing it by purchasing treasury bonds uh, and mortgage bonds, but a majority of what they buy are treasury bonds. Okay. So now the Fed is directly buying US debt through the primary dealers and let's just fast forward to the last two years, okay? When, when, when the Fed steps in and does this dramatic quantitative easing, this huge rescue plan, printing $4 trillion, it's doing it primarily by purchasing US government debt. And, and it buys the debt and puts it on its own balance sheet or in its vaults, the so-called Fed balance sheet. But what this means is that for the last year and a half, two years at least, the treasury is borrowing trillions of dollars to fund its general operations. We are operating at deficit before COVID and the rescue plans. And in some given months, the Federal Reserve is purchasing roughly 80% of the newest of the new US government debt that's being issued. So what we have here is the government borrowing money that is printed by the Fed, and the Fed is taking the US government debt onto its balance sheet. Is what they call monetizing debt. The, the United States is just spending, spending newly printed money, which has this knock-on effect <clears throat> of keeping those interest rates for our debt low, right? Because the Fed's a huge buyer, and so you can still offer really low interest rate. This all brings us up to where we are today, which is the Fed being forced to tighten because of inflation which then raises this question of like, wow, well, what's going to happen to interest rates on US debt if the Fed's not stepping in to buy these huge amounts every month? That, that's a giant open question that's hanging over us. So yes, the Fed is subsidizing US debt by purchasing so much of it and keeping rates low. Why this matters, right? Why is this such a big deal? And you use a great word, the fragility. Um, your average American on this show particularly, I actually think, and we talk about it all the time, average Americans actually very smart. They may not have an economics degree, but they can see that what's going on is not sustainable. They, they probably couldn't go through the ins and outs of this, um, but they can, they know, they know, hmm, this is just not normal. And what comes with not normalness means that, you know, usually there's a catch somewhere down the road. You know, you do a great job in the book talking about how this kind of income and equity disparity over the past 10 years, when you had QE really starting in 2010, has only widened the gap, right? It's, it's benefited people that have assets um, as opposed to really solving the, the kind of true economic, you know, tr the true challenges that our economy is facing. When you look at 
you know, the 70s, which you talk about in the book, the big kind of, you know, I call it kind of like juicing the wheels, right? Like, well, how, how is the Fed juicing the economy in the 70s? It just had low interest rates, right? Like that was the big thing that they were doing. This whole idea of QE didn't even exist in the 70s. And that worked and it juiced the economy. And you talk about asset inflation, uh, asset price inflation and price inflation. We actually talk a lot about that on the show also. So our listeners are, are pretty familiar with that concept. And then, you know, you talk about Volcker coming in, jacking up interest rates aggressively, and then the crash in the early 80s as a result. When you look at how aggressive the Fed has gotten. Obviously, Powell understands this. Is it even possible to have a soft landing? Obviously, there needs to be a crash, but like, is there any way that this, that after such aggressive behavior, which by the way, has, has not even fully stopped, they're, they like want to stop it. But as you're pointing out, they're kind of in a pickle. Like I can't, you know, if I stop it, then boom, I, I'm buying 80% of, of the federal government's, you know, new debt on a monthly basis. I mean, is there any way that, that there's a soft landing in all of this? I, I don't see it. I mean, I think you could have a, like a softer crash, but I don't see how you don't have a massive crash at some point. I don't know when. Just given how fragile the economy is because the Fed has enabled such kind of insane risky behavior, not just in the past few years, but like, you know, the past plus decade. Yes. So much to unpack there. And I'm going to answer your question. But first of all, I mean, God, so much to unpack there. Um, thank you for advocating on behalf of the average American's intelligence, because I think you're, you're actually quite correct. And, and one of the kind of storylines that has really been frustrating me lately to be blunt, is that people are too stupid to realize how good the economy is right now. That is very, very, very uh, demeaning and frustrating to me. And look, Ameri look, we all have the sort of tendency to maybe look at when the glass is half full, but let's step back and remember that in general, American wage earners have not seen their pay increase for decades. Wages have been stagnant for decades. And the cost of living is rising. It's been rising more slowly over the last decade, but also just the complexity of navigating this economy is rising with this private health insurance system. I mean, Americans know that more and more of the cost is being put on their shoulder and they're not getting a pay raise for it. And people feel that in their bones. That's reality. I've been writing about it for a long time as a journalist. So you're, I'm going to get to your question about the crash, but you say, you know, what, what is the catch? I think the catch is twofold. Over the last decade, these policies have dramatically enriched the people who own assets. You know, it's something like the top 10% of our population owns 80% of the assets. The bottom half of all wage earners own about 7% of the assets. So these Fed policies of extraordinary easy money have been dramatically enriching asset holders and the rich while the middle class has been treading water. That's one big catch. And I try to write a lot about it in the book of how really awful the last decade has been for wage earners. But then let's get to your huge question. The second catch of this is a catch that none other than the Fed chairman, Jay Powell, has been talking about for years, at least inside the bank, which is that when you pump up asset prices this much, they eventually crash. There's no other way to put it. 
you know, he calls it a large and dynamic event, um, but it's a crash. And, you know, if, if asset prices could just float as a bubble forever, life would be so good. It'd be so easy, but that's not how reality works. And so now the Fed is in this position of having pumped up the markets for risky debt and risk assets. It's been pumping up these markets for a decade. The market started to correct when COVID hit and the Fed stepped in with an extraordinary intervention. Emphasize this point, then the, the intervention didn't just heal asset markets, but kept pumping them further. That's what's so remarkable is after COVID, we see corporate debt hit a, a new record from pre-COVID levels. We see stock prices, tech stock prices hit new records. So where we are today is a dangerous place to be frank because of the following. You know, if the Fed had 10 years to kind of try to unwind this stuff, we could maybe do it in a calm, you know, incremental manner. But it's it's the darn price inflation. That's what's changing the equation is the Fed's like, ah, we cannot let this price inflation get deeply rooted and accelerate So we're going to have to tighten a a lot faster than we wanted to. We're going to have to pull back the money we pumped into the banking system. We're going to have to raise interest rates. So can we do it with what you just described as the soft landing? Okay, this is secondhand, but someone who's one of these private sector advisors to the Fed says that Jay Powell has described what they're doing now as trying to land a 747 on an aircraft carrier. I say that's like another way of saying crashing a 747 because it's not meant to do that. So the Fed is trying to tighten in a way that doesn't cause a massive downward asset correction. But recent history shows us you can't pull back these policies. You can't quantitatively tighten, so to speak. You can't hike rates without the private sector readjusting, reorienting itself around a higher interest rate world. And that's going to create volatile jarring effects, downward wrenching, downward uh, asset prices. So at the very best, we're in for a bumpy road over the next two years as the Fed is forced to tighten the money supply because of price inflation. This was Tom Honig's uh, original concern was, how do you put the genie back in the bottle? And the answer is, uh, you kind of can't, right? And they did it. When did they do it? Um, like in 2012 or 13 or 14. And then, and it lasted for like a week and then they went back on it, right? It's so interesting. Like in a serious way, they've been talking about normalizing since 2010. When you look at the debates inside the Fed, they're like, oh yeah, things will be back to normal by 2015. But then Bernanke's like, well, let's just do this massive round of quantitative easing. And then the next one. And then they start saying, okay, folks, we're serious. We're going to make it normal. <laughs> in, and they start saying that in 2014. And they're like, 2015 is a year, folks. Well, okay, fine. They hike rates December 2015 by a tiny incremental amount. The short answer is they tried to hike rates and draw down their balance sheet really in a significant way starting in, in 2018. And they got rates as high as two and a half percent, which is still historically very low. They drew down the balance sheet from about four and a half trillion down to in the high three trillions. And then the system short circuits. 
the system absolutely short circuits in December 2018. There was a, a kind of scarily coordinated downward correction in asset prices across the board, stocks, bonds, commodities, all moving down in sync because they had all been boosted in sync by the Fed. And, 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 and as you say, the Fed absolutely reserved, they called it the Powell pivot, January 2019. He's like, it just can't be overstated. In, in December 2018, Jay Powell was saying, this normalization is on autopilot. We, we are not going to stop. We've got to do this. And then literally in January 2019, he says, I'm sorry, just kidding. We're not doing it. Powell was saying 2% price inflation would be the limit for $125 billion a month QE, right? If, hey, if we see 2% price inflation, we're putting the kaput, you know, the, the kaputs on, uh, on this QE, right? I mean, we are way past 2% price inflation at this point. This extreme behavior by the Fed and you, were, you talk about how, hey, yeah, I mean, the Fed did something initially right when COVID hit early March of 2020, and it didn't do anything. The, you know, the market still tanked, right? Do you get the sense that people are losing confidence and trust in the Fed? Uh, it's, uh, that's a huge question. First of all, there's a lot of confidence that the Fed will step in and bail out Wall Street. The, the Wall Street has learned watching the Fed that there's a bottom and, and the Fed will step in. So, there, but, but even the confidence in that is being shaken again by price inflation. And, and we can't overstate this enough that we really haven't seen price inflation since the early 80s. And we have not seen it at all over the last decade. In fact, we had a lot of deflationary pressures uh, in the economy, which caught the Fed by surprise. It always thought we'd have inflation. But seeing this inflation erupt is reducing confidence in the Fed for two key reasons. First of all, just without question, can't be debated, the Fed entirely missed the, the endurance and severity of this inflation. Jay Powell's out there every month saying, hey, folks, transitory inflation, little bumps, going to moderate, it's going to go away. And it kept intensifying and intensifying and broadening. Huge mistake. And everybody sees that it's a mistake, particularly people who pay attention to this. And everybody sees that the Fed's trying to play catch up. We called it on the show, by the way. We've, we've been calling it for like probably over a year now because we'd work with a lot of B2B distributors. Yeah. So and, 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 and what they're telling me right now, the CEOs of our clients, it's not going away, right? And, and we work in a variety of industries across B2B distribution. And all I'm hearing is, yeah, it's not getting better. That's exactly right. And it's, it's deep and enduring. It's funny. I talked to a group this morning at a, at a breakfast club and heard the exact same thing you heard. All these people hearing Jay Powell say the transitory was inflation, but the people in the business world are like, are you kidding me? They're having to raise wages and you don't take away wage gains. Like that's permanent built in to take one small example. And uh, there, to, to put it politely, there is a huge disconnect between what Jay Powell says publicly and what reality is. Because in, in December of 2020, he got up and said, we are not seeing elevated asset prices, which even the, anybody, it's just like, wait, you can't say that. That's, I mean, you can say, 
these elevated asset prices are a necessary side product of our actions, or we don't think it's too hot, or we think it's okay. But to say it's not happening reduces confidence in your statements. And, and, and so the, the, the inflation thing also has undermined confidence in what they're saying. But secondly, again, it, it, it raises the prospect that we haven't faced in years that, wow, the Fed can't just step in and pump money again. When, when markets correct downward, has the Fed lost its capacity to just do another giant round of QE? Is inflation going to stop that? And so now, in my mind, what you're seeing on Wall Street with this up and down of this year is, is this huge question of, is, is the era of buy the dip over? Is that a real thing we're facing now? Because if it is, it's pretty darn scary and asset prices are going to correct downward and stay there. Uh, but if we think the Fed is going to take even more radical interventions and, and do whatever it can to buoy stock prices, well, we're going to keep buying the dip. And again, it's price inflation that could change this dynamic. If the Fed feels like we can't do more QE because inflation is hitting 10, 11, 12%, that changes the the picture. Yeah. And, you know, kind of taking a step back here, going to this theme of there's a reason why this country went through a couple periods eliminating the central bank. When the, Fed, when, when the current iteration of the Fed was created over 100 years ago, it was done to restrain and restrict a lot of activities of the Federal Reserve. When gone unchecked, when you have the ability to literally just print money, that's a very powerful uh, capability and can be used and and harmful to a lot of people. You know, you talk about one example where Ben Bernanke just flat out lied to the American people, right? We're talking about here examples where, I mean, Powell's up there just saying, asset price inflation, like, why? I mean, you just can't believe this, right? Like, come on, Powell, you're a smart guy. I mean, you can't, you're telling me there's no asset price inflation? And you talk phenomenally about Honig and you know, the FOMC not wanting to show that there's like debate and kind of just becoming this like political apparatus that needs to vote in unison rather than actually debate. It's funny, Ray Dalio has in his principles book has this like decision tree chart. And, and we use that in our uh, employee performance reviews. And one of them is, does the employee make decisions to look good or does the employee make decisions to solve the actual problem, right? And and the Fed is taking, unfortunately, the former route for years now, if, if anything, decades. I think that, you know, and, and you talk about this, it's just, there's so short-term, there's such short-term thinking in the Fed and they're actually causing, I think long-term, I actually think they're causing a lot more pain than good, frankly. I think some pain in the short term, even if it's a lot of pain in the short term, is what this economy, <laughs> this society needs. We got to wake up and you know recognize that we're living in an unsustainable environment. Yes, we want to try and blunt some of that blow. And yes, you know, we, like we want to try and help things, but at what cost? And it just seems like we are being set up for such a fantastic fall. It just seems very irresponsible to me. And particularly you dovetail that with the 
you know, with the insights you have in the book where you actually look at like the average American and did they actually benefit from all of this? And the answer, I think, largely is no over the past 10, 12 years. And you say, you know what? There's probably a reason why the Fed had all these restrictions. And, you know, maybe we would have been better off if we hadn't done QE 12 years ago and we had kind of just had pain. And, and yes, a lot of pain. But long term, would we have entered COVID with, you know, with such a fragile economy where, yeah, the Fed announces like more money printing than they've ever done literally in like, what, 100 or 200 years, but still the stock market plunges, right? Like that's not a reaction from a healthy market market or healthy economy. So those are the questions I have. I hope I'm wrong, but man, I just, uh, I feel like, I, I don't know. I feel like we're really in for some, some unfortunate pain, which didn't need to be this bad if you had a more longer term thinking a Fed that more so resembled what it was meant to do than kind of this new reincarnation. I don't know. Am I completely off base? No, you're not off base at all. And, um, and, and to be honest, I feel extremely similar in my view. I'm pretty nervous about where we are today. Uh, so let me, let me try to address this because it's imp- I, le- like, let's look at the debate in 2010 when the Fed went down this path. Um, and by the way, quickly, you talk about Bernanke lying. And I think what you're referring to is in 2010, when the Fed does this quantitative easing, this guy goes on 60 minutes and categorically says, we're not printing money. Okay. Okay, fine. We understand the mint runs the printing press, but what you're doing is misleading the American people. We, we know what we're, everybody knows what you're doing. You're printing money. You're creating new dollars. I feel like that was extremely misleading and not honest. So the, let's look at the debate of, of, of what got us to where we are. And, you know, your point of like, should we have accepted some pain in 2010 to have avoided a much larger problem in 2020? And, I, you know, I don't think it's, it's feasible to say, uh, like, on moral terms, we've got to let the economy hurt, uh, you know, on, on some kind of puritanical moral grounds. But, but the argument that was being made in 2010 is, look, economic growth is fragile and it's weak, but the economy is starting to dig itself out from this hole of 08, which, by the way, was created in large part by the Fed. That's what drives me so crazy. Um, I'm, I'm all for picking on bankers in Wall Street. That's fine. But like, let's also look at what the Fed did with these financial incentives that created the housing bubble. But so in 2010, the Fed, the, the economy is growing out of that. And nobody on the top policy committee at the Fed, the FOMC, nobody in 2010 thought we were heading into a recession. Nobody did. But it was, hey, this growth is not fast enough. We need to juice it. And, and we're going to break out of our lane to juice it. And what the people like Tom Honig, and he wasn't alone, he was the only guy who voted no, but there were many other people inside the Fed's leadership committee saying, if you do this, you're going to be making the problem worse. You're going to be piling up these long-term risks and the bill is going to come due eventually. And it's such a hard argument to, to make. And I don't want to overstretch this analogy, but in a way, it's similar to our war in Afghanistan, which again, I know war and killing is very different from central banking. But there's this argument to be made that if we had shown more humility and restraint in 2002, 
and negotiated with these people called the Taliban, who were our enemy. But if we had come to a negotiated peace, we could have stabilized the country and gotten out. In the, in the same way, the argument that was being made in 2010 in monetary policy was recognize some, some restraints on what you can do and don't look heroic in public, okay? We're probably going to get criticized, but if we show some restraint and let the economy start to grow out of this hole, we will be reducing the future risk. And, but they did the exact opposite. And, you know, Ben Bernanke's memoir, as I say many times, his memoir is entitled The Courage to Act. And I feel like that's kind of Bernankeism in a nutshell is, you know, we're the brave central bankers, we're swashbucklers, we're driving economic growth, we're smarter than everybody else on earth. But in reality, they were just pumping money into the banking system. And now the price tag is much higher. And we can't get normal again without paying an even larger price tag now. But if we had shown some restraint in 2010, the bill wouldn't be as high. Yeah. So maybe the, the real title should have been the courage to not act. Just don't do it. Right. <laughs> and that's such a hard argument to make. And again, like I'm not this hawk, like we need people to suffer. I mean, or, or, you know, we need to not do this on some kind of high principle, but it's, it's pragmatism. Yes. The courage to show restraint and long-term thinking. Two or three questions here. I know we're running up on time. Uh, let me give you all three and then, you know, I'll save the, 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 the most fun one for last. And then you can, you know, I'll, I'll let you kind of have at how you want to answer. Okay. First question is when do the rails come off? Kind of feels like it's this like three, 4% interest. You can't cover these, these CLOs anymore. And, you know, if we ever get to the point of three or 4% interest, oh boy. Yeah. Get ready. Um, so first question is when do the rails come off? Second question is what should people be doing with their money? Um, kind of given all the uh, insane things we've been talking about. Third question, this is the most fun one, is is the saving grace in all of this that all the stuff we're talking about the U.S. doing, like China has done like 30 times worse. Uh, so maybe as long as they're doing it worse than we are and like as long as their rails come off before ours, then like we'll still be okay. <laughs> I don't know. So, so first of all, when do the rails come off? Um, I hate to say it, but like pretty soon. Um, three or 4% interest rates. Let's talk about the interest rate on a 10-year treasury bond. That's kind of the benchmark that used to be where people would stash their money to be safe. 10-year uh, treasuries are now at about 2%. They've been under 1% for a long time. I just can't overstate what a radically different world we would live in if that interest rate hit three or 4%, let alone, I think the interest rate you're talking about is that short-term interest rate, the Fed controls, which is at zero right now. Um, I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to sound uh, like glib or hyperbolic. If that short-term rate got to 4%, I mean, just sit back and, and the, the entire world is going to rearrange itself. We've effectively been at zero for over a decade. We got up to two and a half percent. The system short circuited. We yanked it back to zero in a hurry when the economy was growing, by the way, in July of 2019. So it doesn't take, I, I'm telling, I mean, in my sincere opinion, having studied the recent history, if we get that short term rate up to two and a half percent, 
there will be massive changes in the global financial system as the world reacts to 2.5%. So we're not too far from major reordering. Because they've projected going up 75 basis points this year. That's been the guidance so far, right? For sure, but I can't overstate it. When you look back at their track record on projections versus what they hit, they're always slower than the projection. But but yeah, they're talking, and again, we are at zero. So they're talking about getting up to maybe, you know, almost 1% uh, in that neighborhood, which is still extraordinarily low when you also factor in inflation. So it doesn't take much for a massive reordering to, to start to unfold. And then that's like, well, what should we do with our money? And my answer to this is unsatisfying, but sincere. I know I've been a business reporter since about 1999-ish or 2000, and I have only learned enough to know that I I am the mark at the poker table. I am never going to try to outstreet Wall Street. I'm never going to try to outstreet BlackRock and Larry Fink. Um, I take a very, very conservative investment approach of the old 401k it's a bummer. Uh, you take your lumps when the market crashes. Uh, you try to be conservative and take the long-term view. Uh, I think trying to outsmart the market is very difficult. Uh, it takes a very high bar. And there are people who, who, who are smart who try to do it. I just stay away. So I take a very conservative approach with a long-term view um, and, and just try to hold on. You're just holding cash right now? No, no, I've got your standard 401k. Um, I draw down the amount that's in stocks because of all this stuff I report on, but I have missed out on an insane rally in the stock market to a certain degree. So you could call me the dummy, but I'm just like, none of this makes sense to me. It's way overinflated. The people in the money markets are telling me it's way overinflated. I guarantee you, like BlackRock is positioned for a stock market fall. I mean, right. somehow, just no doubt. Um so I'm not all in cash. I'm in, you know, um, conservative retirement investments, and you know, I own, you know, I mean, I own my house, that kind of thing. Um, but really, my retirement plan is to just work, which luckily I like my work and and all that. So, you know, the the third question is really interesting, um, and I'm glad you pointed it out. China is an enormous global competitor. They've been, they play a long-term game. They've been extremely smart, et cetera, et cetera. Their debt problem is worse than ours in many ways. And and you're exactly right. They're a very, very fragile economic system. So in many ways, the, the dragon caricature is overstated. And yes, uh, the European Union is in a weaker position than we are. Their banking system is a ridiculous mess to put it quite simply. Uh, uh, China is no, uh, you know, invincible machine by any, and their debt crisis is, is amazing. You know, Evergrande, right? You, your listeners probably are very familiar with Evergrande. So you're right. We have this competitive advantage in a way. Our economy is still very strong in the sense of, you know, we're highly productive. We're an extremely work-oriented society. I mean, America has a ton going for it. So that bodes to our favor. I I still don't think we should be cavalier about um, assuming that this reality of a bottomless appetite for our debt and low interest rates is just going to continue forever. 
that's a dangerous line of thinking because you can get caught up short. So, uh, you know, the stuff is complex, but you're right. Many of our economic competitors are pretty weak too. Well, yeah. I mean, it's funny. I was, I'm reading the book. I'm <clears throat> listening to you know, what Bernanke was saying. And I was like, you know, I, I wonder if they just looked at what China was doing and was like, yeah, let's do that. Right. Cause like <laughs> China's like got this, their own little closed bubble, which is what's so concerning about them taking Hong Kong and kind of bleeding it over into the global financial markets. But if they got their own little bubble, they have, that's the difference between Europe is they can't, their central banks can't really print and buy debt the same way that the U.S. government can do it because all the bonds and everything are denominated in dollars. But in China, in their own little bubble, they can kind of do the same stuff. And they've been doing it like if we're printing a, an insane amount of money, which we are, I've seen reports that they're doing it like three times the amount that we are. And I'm yes. like, oh my God. I mean, so then, you know, my mind is blown from what we're doing here. And then I don't even know. I mean, it's just uh, so it's a it's a crazy time. China's housing bubble dwarfs the United States housing bubble of the 2010s. And that I mean, talk about delaying paying the bill. Um, yeah, they're they're doing the exact same thing. But again, it doesn't necessarily make me more comfortable because our economies are so interlinked. And China is a huge source of demand. Uh, prefer, you know, commodities and raw materials that it, it's not like we can just sit back and watch. We're going to be tied up with what's going on with them. And one of the interesting dynamics to me is as, as, as we've pushed into this easy money era, I'm not blaming everything on us, but it does encourage that behavior or even pressure the other, other nations to do the same you know, to, to sort of keep up with what we're doing. Like European Central Bank is a pretty great example of that. So, um, yeah, it, we're inter, inter, interlocked and it's going to be, I mean, it's life is always interesting, but the next few years in markets is, is going to be fascinating and, and uh, probably pretty volatile. <laughs> well said there, Chris. Well, Chris, it was really a pleasure having you on today. Uh, definitely go check out the book, Lords of Easy Money. Um, such, a, such a great read and uh, really does a great job illuminating so many kind of hard and difficult to explain concepts. So Chris, great to have you on. Hope, uh, hope to stay in touch.